G'day and welcome to Occupied, your fortnightly podcast for all things occupation and occupational therapy. Today, I got to have a chat with Samantha Bowen, an occupational therapist from Perth, who started an entrepreneurial project to try and get more young people working in the field of aged care. So how have you been? May have been good. I have so many things I need to do. It's a bit ridiculous. That's the story but of your life, though. That's, you're always like that. I know. I just feel that I've this year has just stepped up that notch and I've got these things that are, you know, pretty high priority and I just need to work a bit, bit longer. That's fine. Can't do as many fun things. I can't slack off as much as I used to. <laughs> that's that's called adulting. <laughs> but I don't want to be an adult. <laughs> There's always room for a little bit of kid, even when you are fully adult. But yeah, unfortunately, it's a process we all go through. Yeah, I mean, the best thing about doing what I do is that, like today, I I took an hour and a half off during the day to go have lunch with a friend. You know, and that means I just need to make up an hour and a half somewhere else, and it's okay. But just you, you kind of in what you do, you kind of set your own, like you set your own timetable essentially, don't you? Yeah. 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 I'm getting better at time blocking, and I'm getting better at knowing what my priorities are and and scheduling that. So it's just that now I'm getting not I'm not stressing out. I'm just making sure that everything looks super professional, polished. Good. Good. Yeah. What's because you've essentially explain explain what you do before I butcher it. You explain what you do. <laughs> so hard. Okay, so I am the founder of Acorn Network, which is an organization I established to promote the amazing things that young people and emerging leaders in aged care do, why they're passionate why they love aged care and supporting them to find their leadership pathways and make a positive impact in the ways that they want to do that. So it's not specifically OTs, it's all allied health? Um, it is everyone in who might be employed by an organisation. So it could be admin staff, the receptionist on the front desk. It could be um, a lawyer. It could be an accountant. People who provide support to the frontline staff, I want to make sure that they have the opportunity to contribute to aged care and give back because by everyone being at the table and providing their own unique point of view, we can create that shared vision and move this sector forward in a more positive way. So I've known you for since you were a student, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is always, I think, as long as I've known you, this has always been sort of the area that you just were a hundred percent. This is where you were going. Where did where did that come from? Where did you find this sort of interest in aged care? Because I would imagine, and I would imagine, this is the whole sort of purpose behind what you're doing. It's not really an area that would be overly attractive to younger clinicians to work in. I think aged care is very, very attractive to a lot of people. It's just that there is a stigma attached to it. As soon as you say aged care, people then come up with their own vision that it's only old people who work in this industry. 
I got interested in aged care because I had a negative experience in mental health. My mum was admitted into a mental health facility and I didn't see them providing recovery-focused interventions. And I got really, really angry. I thought, why are they doing this? I know what best practice is. I am studying this in uni right now and I don't see them interacting with her. I don't see all these things that would make her life better in this facility happen. So that was when I took this step back and used this OT lens like, there are this stuff, there are these stuff. What is the environment that's around them that is causing this to happen? And realize that maybe they didn't have the support that they needed. Maybe they needed to advocate in a better way. Maybe all these different things were com- combinating into this environment. And instead of getting angry, I needed to create something that would support the staff better. Okay. So, how did you decide to take that, say, into age, like that whole concept into age care as opposed to like mental health where you sort of got the, I guess, the inspiration negatively uh, inspired to, to take action? Because of that negative experience in mental health, I still get really, really emotional in the space mm-hmm. and I just can't touch it. Okay. It's a, it's a space that scares me because as soon as I go there, I can get really, really emotional and a bit, still a bit angry. So in 20 years time, my mum's going to need aged care services. So I want to make sure that we don't have a similar experience again. I want to make sure that there's person-centered care. It's relationship driven and that there are passionate people in all levels of leadership who are committed to helping her live her best life as she ages. And eventually me when I need aging services. Yeah, well, all of us, hopefully. Mm. So you obviously identified this very large shortfall within the mental health sector and then are are applying it to an aged care sector. Did you find when you started looking at aged care, the aged care sector, that there was a similar barrier in there or like a similar deficit, I guess, already? I found there were a lot of similarities, but aged care is its own beast. There are a lot of um, challenges that are happening in the sector. It's highly regulated. There's a lot of change that's occurring. And like mental health, um, it's very emotional. The families and the individuals who are receiving care um, are very, very focused around creating change, as are a lot of healthcare professionals and the government's on board with that. And then there's the providers and the peak body. So it's like this huge melting pot of all these amazing ideas. But what I found is that in mental health, there are a lot more young professionals who are active in that space and that they're given the opportunity to share their their voice. But in aged care, young professionals aren't necessarily provided that platform. And young people have aging parents. We have grandparents. We have loved ones who are within this industry receiving care or on their way to receiving care. And very, very rarely are we invited to the table to help share our ideas and um, ways that we think can move us forward. Why do you think that is? Like you said, um, aged care is seen to be an undesirable place to work for some people. Like as an OT, when I was on placement, I didn't receive um, a highly positive experience when I was a student. 
we I went in bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, um, was given this amazing project to work on. And then by the end of it, I remember my supervisor just saying, well, thank you so much for spending seven weeks on this project where instead of um, implementing this, it's going to sit on a shelf for six months and I'm not sure if anything's, any change is going to happen. So that, but that was in that was in aged care that project. That, that yeah, was- that was in aged care in a specific facility, um, and that was like wow, that's really interesting. And then when I came up with more ideas or um, said, oh, why are we doing it this way? This way looks really awesome. Um, a lot of time there was a lot of pushback saying, you know, it's just not the way we do things here. Just slow down. Don't lose that energy a bit just like don't be as youthful in the way that you approach things just i don't know that must have been very frustrating it was and i didn't see any other young people who were working in the similar area or in leadership positions that i could go to and vent and say oh my god this is happening and then i wasn't be able to reflect and get that story back saying you know this is why this is happening. I wasn't be able to wasn't provided the opportunity to have someone provide me with more context. So what sort of or what's you said you didn't see many young people in leisure. Well, like what sort of age group was sort of occupying those positions? Well, if you look at a lot of the data that's out there, across Australia, the majority of people who work in aged care are over 47. So it's an aging workforce. It's highly recognized as being that not only in Australia, but in Canada and the US and in a lot of other countries that have aging services. And it's a it's an aging workforce. And young people, so those who are under 45 or around the 35 mark, they aren't necessarily being recognized as leaders and people who are going to stay and help contribute to the industry so, so you, they're not provided with um, opportunities to go into leadership or to be provided those opportunities to get further education that will support them in, in higher leadership. So you, you bring up an interesting thing just then around uh, that they're not necessarily, they may not be given the opportunity to go into those positions, but also the fact that they don't stay. Is mm. it, is it, the, it, do you think it's harder to retain young people in those positions in or in like through your work or is it harder to sort of get them in there in the first place? I think it's a combination of the two. I mean, um, if you're looking at nurses and personal care workers, there's it's seen to be have a high churn rate. So the 25 to 30% um, attrition is something that is recognised as occurring across aged care in Australia. Okay, okay. so I understand there's there's an obvious deficit of young people in those leadership positions and the ones that do sort of make the move into those positions, there's a high attrition rate, so we're losing them out of those positions. What What's the actual benefit of having young people in those positions as opposed to older people when... I don't know, I, I would think from the older person's point of view, I'm not saying that I'm the older person, but I guess I kind of am. From an older person's point of view, it, I guess they would may see it that, you know, it's kind of they have more experience with older people because they might be closer to that age group kind of thing. 
What what mm. what would the benefits be of putting younger people into those positions? It's increasing diversity. We need more diverse thoughts, more diverse ways of doing, and having a young person in a leadership role and providing insights just challenges you to think differently, challenges you to say, oh, well, why are we doing it this way? It's just like culture diversity and um, and other diversity within our workplace. The, the more diverse we are, the more ideas and opportunities that we see around us, the better off we're going to be in creating that long-term vision and and identifying the challenges that are before us and creating solutions. Yeah, sweet. So you are obviously an occupational therapist now. Did mm-hmm. you, but you weren't, that, that wasn't like you didn't go into OT straight after school or anything, did you? You were, you were doing a few other things beforehand, weren't you? Yeah. So after I finished high school, I had no clue what I wanted to do. So I accepted the first degree that I got offered and that was sports science and decided that, you know, it was a pretty good degree, but not something that I wanted to pursue. So then I left that and joined the Navy for a few years. As you do. As you do. I mean, (laughs) doesn't everyone? (laughs) Um, So I joined the Navy and found that to be very challenging. I saw really, really good leadership. And I also saw really bad leadership. Um, And after leaving that, I sort of wafted around for a bit, did admin, and my mum told me to check out OT. I was like, what is OT? What (laughs) did he actually do? The age-old question. (laughs) And I was like, oh, I'll just apply, see if I get in, and if I don't like it, I'll just change to physio or something. (laughs) And it just, (laughs) and then it just, um, yeah, it was the principles of OT that just got me. The whole framework snagged you around OT. I was like, man, this is just so intuitive. Why doesn't everyone know this? And that's, I think, that's one of the beauties of our profession is the fact that as much as we seem to struggle in actually explaining it sometimes i think when we do it, people get it like it makes sense it's not overly complex uh it's quite a simple complex uh, quite a simple concept that you know we utilize in a very complex way exactly yeah people People look at what I do and they think, wow, you're so process driven. I'm like, actually, I'm just scaffolding, dude, like (laughs) breaking down my task into tiny little pieces and just like adding on layers of complexity as I get better. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, I mean, most people that there are so many people out there that would, when faced with any kind of issue, probably work that out themselves. Mm-hmm. They don't need our assistance. I mean, we're there for people that haven't been able to work that out themselves, but it's not a lot of the stuff that we do isn't so specialized. It's more, I guess, it's the higher end of common sense in a lot of ways. Exactly. And sometimes you're so stuck in an issue, you're so stuck in an emotion that you can't see outside that cloud. And being that person that can help you move forward, even though it's that one simple step, it's you appreciate that person so much. And even though I'm not a clinical OT, 
what I've been able to provide is a different point of view in a business sense to organizations and young people to help them find clarity in the way that they want to move forward and provide them with the networks that they need to make a difference. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you think, so obviously what I was thinking before was like whether or not your say career in the Navy and your other things that you've done prior had any influence over your OT, but I suspect that uh, they probably didn't have a lot in the decision initially to join, but I have a gut feeling that they've probably had a fair bit of influence into what you've done with that degree since. Definitely. I have seen that like my sports science degree has given me a very good understanding around more of the complexity around healthcare and because sports scientists and exercise physiologists are recognized around that thing that they do and being very specific and having a lot of clarity is really, really important. And then being in the Navy, it allowed me to see really, really good leadership and being exposed to that level of support and having someone who is in the top tier of an organization say, I see you, even though you are um, someone who's right at the bottom rung, makes a huge difference. And no matter if you're in aged care or what leadership level that you're at, showing, showing others that you see them and that you're there to listen is so important. So I'd really love to unpack that a little bit because I think the leadership thing is something that not a lot of OTs have either had much experience with or put a lot of thought into. So I'd love to pick your brain about that. I really want to know, in your opinion, like what's what's the difference between good and bad leadership? Because a lot of I think a lot of OTs will will know it when they're in it, like when they're you know probably in hindsight almost they'll be like, oh yeah, that probably wasn't done the best that wasn't led the best but not a lot of uh clinicians that i know would be able to pick that up as it's happening so what mm. what sort of thing, like what's the difference between what is good leadership what's the difference between good and bad leadership good leadership is knowing that you're busy but prioritizing the relationships around you so that looks like um when you are in that space where you're running between clients when you're writing case notes frantically, trying to make sure that you're on top of everything. Also knowing that, do you have a student next to you that you can involve in that process, even if it's talking to them and asking them how their day is going, talking to them about what you're doing. It's about creating space for relationships and everything that you do. And, and in what I've seen in bad leadership is that people are so busy, they're so caught up in their day-to-day that they see everything that they do as the priority and they don't necessarily recognise that there are other priorities around them and how they can support others and how others can support them. I see a lot of links between, say, not even, well, I guess it probably is a leadership role, but even say in what you've just described and how I'm obviously thinking mental health because that's my clinical background, but how the clinician would interact with the people they work with. 
as opposed to, say, in organizational leadership, I see very similar sort of threads along what's to prioritize, as in prioritizing the relationship as opposed to prioritizing the, the process and that kind of thing. Definitely. Like, everything that we do as OTs is about building that relationship to get that desired outcome. Because if we can't get your client to make this a priority and for them to see that and for them to see you as part of the solution, then you're not really going to be the best OT, right? Well, yeah, and I, I, I remember, I can't, I wish I could remember the name of who did it. Uh, an amazing OT and a friend of mine, uh, Carly Hannon, I remember she ran an in-service once and presented this research that she'd come across that essentially looked at the yeah, what was it? It was essentially the power of that that relationship that you build with a client. And the research essentially broke it down to the point where I think it was sixty percent of a positive outcome was determined by purely and simply the relationship that you're able to build with a client. And it was had all these other things that, you know, make up the rest of the forty percent, but the actual intervention was only like ten percent. And that's what I, I mean, I, I've always told my students and that kind of thing that if they are able to effectively build that relationship, they're, you know, over halfway to a successful outcome already. Exactly. And if you look at it, so you're looking at it from that client perspective, but if you look at it from your workplace perspective, when you have more friends, when you see more support around you and you see other people sharing opportunities with you, you're going to enjoy your job more. You're going to see that there are people who are there to support you when you're going through a tough time. And that creates a space for leadership to thrive. Do you see leadership as, so in your in the ACON project, is the, the leadership that you're trying to develop more of that sort of top-down leadership or are you trying to develop it sort of, you know, like in everyone kind of thing? Um, so my theory is that, um, so what I call the theory of change, the way that I'm going to make change and have the highest impact for me at this present moment in time is looking at those who are in management roles and supporting them to recognise their own leadership potential and I do that by connecting them with a mentor who is an executive or a CEO who's in the aged care space. And they get connected, they learn leadership tools, they learn self-reflection, and they learn how I've, and I share how I've screwed up. I share how mentoring is a positive process, but it is also a process that you can fail in and that, and leadership is a process you can fail in and that is okay. I hold this space for them to connect and and talk with uh, not only myself but their mentor about what a goal that they want to work on and help them break that down into something that's really achievable. Okay. And are the, the mentors, are they also young people or are they just people in the sector who I, I'm assuming you know them and kind of screen them, I guess? Our mentors go through a selection and application process, same as all the mentees. Um, and the mentors are definitely senior leaders who are people who, you know, they might be in their 60s, they might be in their 40s. 
it's just that they have to know that there are challenges out there and that and they have to be open to supporting an emerging leader. Okay, nice. How do you feel your, I guess, OT skill set has helped you into sort of moving into this? It's very, it's, I mean, it's an entrepreneurial sort of pursuit that you're doing. How do you feel your OT skill set may have helped or even hindered, I guess, if possible, uh, you in this pursuit? I guess in the beginning, it sort of hindered me because I saw this massive, wicked, complex problem. I'm like, wow, there's so many things to do, so many opportunities. How can I just focus on one? <laughs> and it really, really, really bogged me down for a while trying to figure out what's what's my jam, what do I really want to work on, and what am I really good at? And what are um, you, what are you really good at? Exactly. And then the more um, opportunities I was given, the more I realized that I'm really good at networking. I'm good at forming mentoring partnerships with others. And I'm really good at public speaking. So how can I use those skills and my OT frameworks to build something that not only supports me to share that aged care is this awesome place to work and has these amazing leaders who are out there ready to support other leaders in the industry to step up and shine, but also um, what what does that look like? And that ended up being creating better networks through um, great events across Australia, um, doing more presentations both in Australia and internationally and creating this online mentoring platform to connect emerging leaders and senior executives in the aged care industry. Are there, were there any particular frameworks? So you mentioned that your OT frameworks helped uh, in, I guess, the development of this platform. What, what Can you unpack that a little bit for me? Yeah, so I, I always loved PEOP. Um, that was always my favourite framework. So um, I've just been using that to look at a particular topic a particular issue and the people that I see at the centre of that and looking at all the barriers and enablers that I can see and what I want to tackle. And then from there, I see what my priority might be. So do you use that like in the development of the ACORN project or do you use that sort of like with an individual leader to work out where they need to work on kind of thing? On all levels. So macro, micro, meso, it's a framework that I use on an individual level all the way up through to like a community level. So when I was looking at Acorn Network, I was like, okay, why are young people not in the positions? Why don't I see them? What's holding, what are the challenges that stop young people from seeing aged care as being this amazing opportunity? And when I broke that down into political and social and built environments and all the other environmental factors, um, I saw that there were a lot of enablers and a lot of barriers, and then I decided to explore further in a few topics and just continue to dig and dig and dig. And then I went down into like an organisational level, and then down into maybe a department level, and then into I'd go to individuals and test my assumptions. So this is a thought that just came to me. But would so when you do that, is this a, something that's ongoing that you still do or is it something that you only did when you were setting up? Mainly because I'm thinking is is it something that, say, an aged care employer, I guess, would sort of get you in to go, well, how can we get 
more young people into this or how or is it more you uh, I guess pushing young people towards that from the other side? It's a combination of both. When I was starting, I'd write it down and I'd get really, really in depth. And now it's almost second nature about how I apply my frameworks. Um, And when I am approached to do consulting or to build a program or initiative, it takes a variety of ways. Um, I can either get really in depth and have to write down that PEOP and really explore that and do more research, or I look back on my past experiences and see what worked and didn't work and and then test those assumptions in in their workplace. I mean I have I've had initiatives that have gone into a workplace, they were successful one time and then something changed and then they've fallen flat on their face and failed miserably. So, you know, it's always a learning process. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and life's a learning process. Definitely. So do you, I, th- I think I know the answer to this because I know that you're always jet-setting around Australia. How has your initiative, your push to get younger people into that industry been received by the industry itself? When I first started four years ago, it was received pretty well, but I'd have CEOs and senior managers come up to me and say, Sam, just so you know, um, we don't employ anyone under 45, so we don't really think that what you're doing is going to work. Um, and that was really, really interesting to see. And I was lucky that I was very resilient and I basically just internally said, well, lucky for you, you're not my target market right now, so we'll just let you keep believing that young people don't care about aged care. I'll move on to the people who are the the people who love what I'm doing and see the value in what I'm doing, and I'll come back to you later. Um, and now four years later, I've had those people who in similar organisations approach me to um, have their young leaders in my mentoring programs. I've been presenting nationally at conferences and been making a really, really big impact. So it's really nice to see that even though that, there are always going to be naysayers that every step forward solidifies that I'm on, on the right path and that um, it's going to take a long time, but it is working. I'm drawing all sorts of like connections with uh, a lot of the clinical work that I've done from what you're saying and that being able to put your efforts into where it's going to have the biggest impact is just that really sort of resonates with me because that's that's something that I used to I was going to say preach but I guess it kind of was preach a lot with the the guys I worked with in mental health and and even other clinicians when they were working in mental health is there are times when the people you work with might not be ready to work on certain things but there's going to be something else that they might be willing to work on. It might be completely unrelated and maybe not what you would envisage the the highest priority to be. But if you put your efforts behind whatever it is, once you almost get to this like critical mass where then you know you'll be able to bring that effort back to where you you originally felt it it might be best utilized it's not a matter of we're doing this or nothing 
which is which is pretty much what you've done on a much larger <laughs> scale, I guess. There's people that were sort of resistant and you're like, well, I'm not going to deal with you now. I'll go and sort of almost snowball it a bit, build a bit of momentum. And then once you see that this actually works and this is how the industry should be moving, then, you know, you're bound to get on board once that happens anyway. 100%. It's like energy conservation. You take the small wins, you do a tiny thing each time build that resilience and build that positivity and then you take that next step forward. So do you think just interesting on the the concept of resilience, obviously it's something that I've worked a lot on with the clients that I've worked with. Do you think that resilience on a, what would you call it? I guess almost a corporate scale is a thing? Totally, especially in healthcare and aged care is currently going through a lot of change. There is a lot of negative industry media out there. Um, You've got government change on a national scale. You've got organisations having to really implement change quickly, but also limited funding. So organisations need to be really, really resilient. I mean, there's stats out there that say that 42% of aged care organisations are not profitable. So they're not earning any money. They're actually losing money, which means that, you know, they have to cut staff and then people think, you know, why do I want to work here when they keep cutting staff and I don't have the people around me to support me to provide care? You know, those people in those organisations from the on the ground all the way up to the executives and the CEOs are all going through different challenges and they're looking at things from different points of view. So everyone needs to be resilient and really look at change in new and different ways. Wow. Okay. Do you think... Because I'm, I'm, I'm curious now about this sort of concept of, I guess, corporate resilience. I'm going to call it corporate resilience. I don't know if it has a term. But do you think it's something that uh, – do you think it's sort of built into the organization or is it just an accumulation of the resilience of the employees within that organization? Do you think – I guess what I'm trying to get at is do you think, say, an if it is something that's built into the organization, could an organization's corporate resilience have an impact on or increase the resilience of its workers through tough times? I reckon it's the resilience of the workforce because not only that resilience, but you have to have people who are able to communicate really, really well. So you need to have really good resilience. And if you can't communicate what you want to do, then a lot of times you're going to fail. And when we're in, an, in a workplace, we find that communication is one of the key things, not only to being a leader, but to being a really good co-worker, right? True, true. So if you're not able to communicate what you're doing every day or how when you go on holidays, how someone can take over your client caseload or if the CEO or the people on, on that executive team can't communicate the vision of the next steps and why every single one of those people in that organization are important to those next steps and help them see that their resilience is actually going to move them forward and make them um, make a more positive impact in their workplace, then why you know, that whole thing is just so important. You need that resilience, you need good communication, and you need to prove that you can be trusted. Yeah. So in order to, I guess, say, I don't know, fail-proof, I guess, an organization, it would be more around uh, up 
upskilling the resilience of the individual workers within it as opposed to building something into the organisation itself? I mean, it depends on the organisation. It's really hard to to be so um, so broad with those terms. Like yeah, every, yeah. every person's different. Every leader leads in a different way and people look at things with different lenses. So for me, it's always like, yep, it's the, the one-on-ones and the communication and, and how you do that to support those around you. Um, but others look at it from a different lens. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, that's interesting. So I, uh, I often do this. I'll kind of things trigger thoughts in my head and then my brain goes off on a tangent and I'll yeah, sort of, good. I try and work through concepts out loud and it, the the concept of I know, corporate resilience or mass <laughs> resilience, I guess, um, struck me as very interesting. But I mean, resilience is all about failure and learning from your failure. Yeah. You know, and that's one of the things that I don't see many of us talking about. How have you failed with clients or how have you failed in your professional sense? How have you failed in how you've built your networks? Like I have walked into a room and walked up to someone and felt like a complete idiot trying to interrupt a conversation or trying to not necessarily interrupt the conversation but try and get involved and I feel like I fail on a constant basis, not only with those types of things, but how I maybe send the wrong email or, you know, lots of different things. You know, it's all about building that resilience. Yeah, which is interesting because I think the general sort of uh, populist sort of view on leadership would be almost the complete opposite. I think most people would see like successful leadership as, you know, leading to victory and, you know, avoiding failure and that kind of stuff. Whereas I I get the hint that what you're saying is it's kind of almost the opposite and it's leading people through and learning sort of how to fail but how to utilise that to eventually or like to to continue on. 100%. Like the one thing that I've learned about building my own business and building a brand is that people love stories. People love when you take them on a journey. I love stories. Exactly. That's, that's why, why I started that's the why, podcast. <laughs> exactly. That's why people listen to the podcast. They love stories. And for me, a story um, has to be real and it has to be vulnerable. Otherwise, I don't connect with it. So when I look at a leader and I want to know how they got there, I don't want to know only about the successes and the people who helped them get to the top. I want to learn why was it hard for you? How did you get over those challenges and who helped support you? And when I hear that, I'm like, actually, I've got a similar problem. And if you got over it, then I'm pretty sure I could too. Interesting. I've never – and I actually really connect with what you said, but I've never actually – consciously thought about it like that that makes a lot of sense to me vulnerability is how you build relationships yeah and i guess trust and i guess that's like even when in my my job now like teaching students about communication and that kind of stuff and it's about being able to not be completely cold and be able to share some of at least some of yourself with someone you've never met because that's essentially what you're expecting from them as well so 
that's, I think, the main thing that a lot of sort of first and second year students that I'm finding find the most difficult with when it's learning to communicate is how do you, like, what, how much should you share? How vulnerable should you allow yourself to become? Definitely. It's a, and it's a fine balance. You know, sometimes you share too much, sometimes, and you get really scared, or sometimes you feel that you don't share enough and you haven't built that strong connection and that trust. And I mean, that only comes through that self-reflection. When you step back, you look at what the situation was and what, and you look at your person, what I like to do is like go to my intuition and say, did it feel icky? Did it feel awkward? And was that a good feeling of icky and awkwardness? Or is it something that I need to keep reflecting on and see why that happened and what possibly could I do in the future to move forward I, I and make it the, better? I love the technical terms. Does it feel <laughs> totally. icky and awkward? No, that's really – and that that reminds me of a, a theory and a concept I used to use in clinical um, – that was put together by a friend of mine about it used to be called the motor is called the motivation to create change and one of the reason I used to like that particular concept was that one of the I think there was eight elements that she said essentially were required for someone to be motivated to change something was their gut feeling like if everything else aligns and your gut saying no this isn't a good idea you're probably not going to do it or you're not going to be motivated to do it Exactly. And there hasn't been too many models or concepts around motivation or skill development or changing habits or anything like that that I've seen that really highlight that as its own sort of entity. Well, if you look at um, sport and motivation, there are frameworks there where you look at um, the motivation of individuals to lose weight or to improve their heart health. And you've got those who are highly motivated and they're actually in that change and they're very proactive. And then it goes down to those who are just thinking about the change and are ready to jump into that more proactive stage, but just aren't there yet. And that keeps going down on that scale to, um, I'll have to forward it to you and share it with whoever's listening. Um, you know, those people who are open to hearing information and they're not motivated to actually implement change and then those who just like don't want anything to do with it. And they're not motivated, they're not ready to listen and you have to push people, well, you don't push people through but you have to recognise that people aren't always going to be ready for the information that you put in front of them and you have to be open to bringing them into your world when they're ready. Definitely, definitely. And that's, that's essentially what this uh, particular concept was looking at as well. Uh, it probably just uses slightly different uh, aspects uh, around the the circumstance, but that's exactly what it was for. And we used to use it to – a lot of the stuff we used to do with mental health clients was a lot of my clients would uh, identify that, yes, I understand, say, quitting smoking, for example. I understand it's bad for me. I understand I want to – it would be better for me if I quit – but I just can't seem to do it. And it was always that inter- that failure of that was always internalized. It was, I can't do it. I can't f- seem to do it. I'm obviously no good at this, blah, blah, blah. And what we found was by breaking it down into these eight components, we were able to identify exactly what it was that was sort of the barrier. And quite often, it was something that was external to them. So Exactly. And I mean, that's the same with when you look at business frameworks when you look at a sales process people are at you know ready to buy 
uh, no, they have the information, they're not ready. You know, you have exactly the same framework for sales and business as you do for um, healthcare, as you do for, you know, um, when you look at economics and people who are trying to save for retirement, you know, there are similar barriers for every single situation and similar frameworks that are there, sitting there. They're just applied in different ways with different language. Do you think, and I uh, again, I think I already know the answer to this, do you think that OTs as a profession are somewhat resistant to pulling information from outside sources or do you just think we're just a very new profession who hasn't sort of got around to that yet? I don't really know. It's hard because um, like when you and I first started um, tweeting each other and um, jumping on the phone and having chats. Um, we both found it really, really um, difficult to connect with certain OTs or um, the energy that was around occupational therapy because um, we were very set in the frameworks. We were very, you had to work clinically to be successful. You had to do this. You had to do these certain steps. And that was something that put me off because I like looking at things in a wicked problem sort of way that there's multiple pathways, like a huge lattice for you to climb. You can go sideways up and down to get where you need to go. Um, And that sort of stopped me from reaching out to more OTs and building um, networks with occupational therapists. I found it easier to talk to nurses um, and executives and people who aren't in the OT space. So, yeah, it's just I didn't reach out. I I saw negativity and I decided that I wanted to conserve my energy and go places where I saw um, the things happening in the way that I liked and that's the places that I went. Okay. Because I wonder, like, and that sounds similar to what I've been thinking for a little while is that OTs almost seem quite insular and a lot of the OTs that I know that I sort of look at and go that's like you know doing amazing work are the OTs that are pulling concepts from other health professions from other you know any professions or anywhere and applying them within an OT framework I, I think OTs see inspiration in everything. They can see it on a TV show. They can see it in the news. They see um, like another provider in a different profession doing something amazing. And they are great at looking at that general information, seeing how that will work in their current context and applying it where they are right now, finding those resources um, and pulling together the bare minimum and doing a, a minimal viable product and testing that. But are we good at then following through and continuing to build that vision and communicate how amazing it is and sharing that with uh, not, not only those within our profession but outside? I think that's where we fail. Okay. So you think we're – I'm to try and use my limited business speak, but you think we're pretty good with the product development but not so much with the marketing. Totally. And I mean, that's across all healthcare. That's across many organizations. It takes a lot of effort to communicate and to communicate, you need to do it more than once. True, true. So what do you think on terms of 
we'll look at OTs or you can look at healthcare in general, but what do you think are some of the main things we need to do to, I guess, improve that, quotes marketing of what we do or who we are even sometimes? I reckon we need to stop doing the tall puppy syndrome and we need to promote those that are doing amazing things. So just for those that might be outside Australia, because I suspect I have a feeling that might be an Australian type saying. Totally Australian. Tall poppy syndrome is uh, a fairly common phenomenon over here where anyone that sort of essentially reaches above the the level of most of the other poppies gets pulled back down. So uh, basically when you're shining or and you're doing an amazing job, other people can nitpick what you're doing and point out the flaws or say, oh, you know, they're really good at what they do, but they might not be great at certain other aspects. So we shouldn't celebrate them as, as brightly as we should. Yeah, I'm not even sure where that actually starts. Like I know it's so embedded in Australian culture and it's like it's obviously not a, a real positive thing, but it's something that's like when I think about it, it's just always been there. It's happened in primary school. It's just I don't I don't know why. I think it happens, but I reckon the thing that holds us back the most isn't necessarily that there are people who are doing that tall poppy and tearing people down. I think a lot of us are just really afraid that it's going to happen to us. So we get afraid of promoting the good things that we're doing. We don't want to be seen as the person that's shining brightly because, you know, we're not, we might actually be failing at a few other things, which is totally fine. Um, But For me, when I first started my business, I got really, really scared about showing what I was doing really well because I was amazing at running events. I was amazing at connecting with all these people and stepping up in front of a room of 200 people to present on this amazing topic about young professionals and how great they are in aged care and all the amazing things that these young professionals were doing. But Behind the scenes, there were things that I was failing at. I was dropping the ball about getting back to people. Um, I wasn't earning as much money as I wanted to or um, I had made a bad impression in a certain way. So when I was promoted or I felt I needed to step up and showcase the amazing things I was doing, the stuff that was behind the scenes made me feel really scared that people were going to see it. So do you think – but do you think that's – almost like chicken or the egg on terms of tall poppy, do you think that you were afraid because you were afraid of being sort of, I don't know, picked on, put in your place kind of thing because of that top kind of tall poppy syndrome? Or do you think that that, I guess, fear of people seeing, it probably comes back to the vulnerability, fear of people seeing those vulnerable aspects of you are what actually creates that tall poppy mindset within the Australian culture? I reckon it's us being afraid to step up that creates that tall poppy culture. And there's also that term called imposter syndrome where you step up, you're in this amazing leadership position, you've been given a promotion um, and you feel like an imposter. You shouldn't be there. There are other people who are more qualified to be in that role and someone's going to figure it out. And you get really, really scared and really anxious and you become a perfectionist. I had never heard of that term until my friend Michelle Perryman used it when she, 
I think when she first went into clinical work and she started telling me that she felt like an imposter, I had no idea what she was talking about. I'm like, you know, you got a degree. What are you talking about? Like, and then when I actually looked it up, I'm like, oh, this is an actual thing. Exactly. And everyone in every level of leadership, if you have a slither of self-reflection ability, there are times when you feel like an imposter in what you do. You're not ready, you haven't prepared properly, and you need to get up there and and push your way through that feeling of discomfort and unknowing and just show that you're ready to give it a go. And every CEO, every manager, every person in an OT role has felt that. It's interesting though because I'd never felt it until after I'd heard of the term. And then it was almost like, oh, wait, yes, okay, I do feel that. It was almost like I would have been like ignorance was bliss kind of thing. I'd never considered myself to feel like an imposter until after I'd heard the term, which is interesting because I mean, I'm not saying that that's why it happens or anything, but it was just, it's just an interesting observation for myself. Definitely. I mean, it's, I don't know. You're just weird, aren't you? We we all know that. (laughs) I I remember just that particular thing again. This is how my brain works. Uh, I remember hearing about a study that I think it was in Norway or somewhere that a psychologist did on his own child where he had this hypothesis that children see this or we, we see the sky as blue because we're taught that it's blue. So, as an experiment, he well, no, he didn't have a kid for the experiment, but he had a kid. But as an experiment, he never, uh, I guess, exposed the child as it was growing up to the concept that the sky was blue. When it was older, this is, I mean, this could be hearsay, but when it was older, it wasn't actually able to identify the color blue anywhere. And that's kind of what made me think about the whole imposter thing. Like it was, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy where now that I know what it is and that it exists, I see it everywhere. Mm. And I mean, if you look at different cultures and language as well, like if there's, I know that there are certain cultures that look at the sky as just being blue or there's only one certain type of green. But when you go to cultures that are in jungle jungle environments they have different names for different colors of green as well that's cool so um it's just because it doesn't have a name doesn't mean that it doesn't exist oh no no it doesn't i wasn't saying it doesn't exist i was but i'm saying i've never i never felt it until i knew of the concept yeah and, and until you're shown that that it, it is there and that there are what different shades of green and it takes a long time to recognize it. You're like, oh, wow. Schrodinger's emotion. Does it exist or does it not until, <laughs> until you're shown that it exists? That bloody cat. I oh, know. <laughs> Silly cats. That's why I don't like cats. They're sneaky. <laughs> uh, so, Acorn. So, it's how, tell me a bit. So, it's an online thing or it's an in person. How does it, how does it work operationally? How does it operate? So, Acorn Network is building a community of professionals in aged care who are passionate about building a shared vision for the future. So, that's around encouraging young leaders and emerging professionals from clinical and non clinical roles to get involved in this discussion 
And we do that through an online mentoring program where you're anyone in a middle management position, regardless of your age, can be matched with an industry executive to support them on a goal and to build their leadership and management skills. And then we also run national um, networking events and partner with organisations to build great initiatives that support young professionals in the industry. So is it at the moment, I say at the moment because I know what you're like, at the moment, is it Australia only? Um, at the moment, it's Australia only, but <laughs> I'm in discussions with other countries. Of course you are. About how to support them to encourage more young people to see aged care as an amazing opportunity that it is. How did I know you would be? <laughs> I've been lucky. I've been given bursaries and scholarships to go to conferences overseas and taken up all these opportunities to meet all these amazing leaders and sh- and tell them that young people want to get involved. So let's make it happen. Awesome. So is there anything similar that you know of or have heard of in other countries at the moment? I mean, there are definitely um, like young OT professional groups. There are young physio groups and they have aged care interest groups within them. But for me, it's about bringing those professionals together and doing it in a way that shares vulnerability and and communicates in a way that young people like and getting all of that together and showing that aged care can be in that space and that young people are ready to be involved in those discussions. So when can we expect like Acorn International to roll out? (laughs) Who knows? Who knows? I don't even know. It's on the horizon, but um, it's just something that has to continue to to evolve. So obviously you're aiming for, well, essentially what you're in is on terms of a space is a a community development space, but on a really large scale. Yeah. Definitely. So I'm assuming your, I guess, outcomes for success would be around changes to that, uh, well, to aged care and the workforce. Entirely. So my aim is to increase the number of young people seeking careers in the industry, help be involved in the challenging the negative perceptions through media and online in on social media as well, but also creating great content like I'm starting a podcast to show that there are leaders out there who have this passion, they're not only young, but they're involved in in changing our industry for the better. Starting a podcast, that's a great idea. I know, you inspire people. <laughs> I'm glad I could inspire someone to do something. <laughs> so what's the tell me about the podcast before I go any further? What's what's it called? Where can we find it? So it's called Grey Revolution. Grey Revolution. Nice. And it's highlighting why people are passionate about careers in aged care. So looking at the why behind um, caring for older adults or why looking at ageing as an issue, not only in Australia, but also in a global context is something we should all be involved in and how that leads to supporting leadership and creating a positive impact in our communities. 
and I assume you'll be hosting it, but you might be talking to le- young leaders or I will be talking concept? to young leaders who are managers and leaders in their organizations, young entrepreneurs, um, people who are in senior executive roles. So someone from the United Nations, the World Health Organization, people in international associations talking about how they got to where they are what that looked like and why aging to them is an issue that they're passionate about. And I know, because I have a little bit of insight because we've talked about this before, but I know it hasn't, as of us recording this, it hasn't been released, but it will have been released by the time this podcast is released. This podcast is released. Where is there somewhere that people might be able to go to find it? Do you know yet? I am assuming it's going to be on Apple and Google Play and SoundCloud, and I need to figure out where other podcasts live. Beautiful. So it'll pretty much, I could probably almost say it'll be pretty much anywhere you can find Occupied. Definitely. And I'm sure you'll help me with that too, Brock. So that'd be nice. I can give you a few pointers. Not a problem at all. So that's... That's going to be really cool. I have to tune in and have a listen to that because I am I am quite interested in OTs, as you probably heard some of my previous podcasts. I'm interested in OTs that are either moving into non-traditional spaces or doing non-traditional things in traditional spaces. Um, and I know that you connected quite well with Melissa, who was the OT that worked with Women's Health and then sort of went into the entrepreneurial role of supporting OTs to develop further in that space. Do you do you see this as your calling or is it something that you're just really sort of into at the moment but you're open to branching out to other things or is this changing this work for not that, you know, because it's, it's not a little thing, obviously. What you're doing is probably more than any other human on in Australia is single-handedly undertaken. But is this is this your calling? Aging is my calling. It is this amazing, wicked issue that has so many different layers. And as soon as you start chipping away at something that you know, you realise that there are so many different things underneath that that you need to learn. And not only is it age care, but it's societal perceptions of aging. It's how you can get young people involved in these issues and support better leadership pipelines and organizational development, community development, um, looking at it from an international context. It's just something that blows my mind. And I absolutely love it. The, the challenges and the, the barriers that pop up in front of me, I'm one of those people that are just like, I see you, but I don't believe that you're going to be there forever. So I'm going to jump over you and try and create something better. Deep. <laughs> Why not? I mean, that's that's. I, I think that's. I think that's a tack that a lot of OTs would not generally be comfortable in taking. As a profession, we seem to be quite conflict avoidant and taking on challenges that head on. I think, or would almost irk a lot of people before they even start. I, don't know, I reckon that's because maybe we're not 
opening up to other OTs about the vulnerabilities and the challenges that we're facing and that imposter syndrome, but we're also not reaching out as much as we need to. So for me, I've been really, really lucky to have amazing mentors and people reach out to me to say, I believe in what you're doing. I'm here if you need someone to shoot ideas with or to share challenges. And I've taken up every opportunity, seen if it worked. I failed a few times, but I've had these people beside me for four years who have just been there and I've cried on the phone to them. I've said, oh my God, I failed miserably. I feel like I'm going to fail. I feel like I'm going to go broke. And then having that space to be vulnerable and having that safe space and that safe person to go to has been something that has helped me see that I'm resilient. This is a challenge. And there are so many ways to get around it. It's all okay. That's awesome. That's awesome. Good. I reckon you could do another whole session on mentoring. God, that would be amazing. I would be quite interested in doing that. We might just have to do that, get you back in and do another a chat about mentoring because that's not something I know a whole lot about. So I would be very curious about that. Yeah, I'm happy to share it like, Let's jump on a podcast another time. Let's record something and I'll show you, share with you how I've failed at mentoring, how I've succeeded and how I've met mentors and some good tips and processes to find one for yourself. Sounds amazing. I am definitely looking forward to that. In the meantime, though, how can people get involved in ACON, get in contact with you? What, where can they find you? You can find me at www dot acorn dash network dot com dot au or info at acorn dash network dot com dot au or on the socials under acorn network wonderful awesome well thank you very much once again well i mean we chat fairly regularly but it's always good to actually well this is a bit different because we're recording it and sending it out to the masses usually our conversations are our conversations but i know uh this will be a little bit different to our usual chats but i i've really enjoyed it and thank you very much thank you for having me and allow me to go on my little rant about why aging is important for everyone to learn about and be involved in. No, 100%. And I look forward to having a listen to your podcast when it, when it drops. Thanks, Brock.